Welcome, everybody, to Bridge Builders Communities Church Sermon Podcast. You are listening to one of our messages from our weekly gathering. We hope that you sit back and enjoy and be blessed. I often talk about the time when I first came to Jesus as a young boy of seven. I mention sometimes how it was when I came back after those years of drinking and drugs and almost committing suicide. And I, I mention that I come back, but I don't really need to talk about that day. I want to talk about that day before I even get into what I really feel the Lord wants to share. But this just hit me. The morning I woke up from almost dying from drinking all night long and knowing that my body was slowly dying that night when I felt the life leaving my body as I laid on a cot in the woods, feeling my feet get cold and then my legs get cold and then up to my waist getting cold. And and then when it got to my chest and I... I felt like God was saying to me, Jay, is this the way that you want it to end? And I, I just said, no, God, I, I don't want it to end this way. And, and I did fall asleep. I did not pass out. I fell asleep. And I woke up the, that next morning with the, for the first time in my life of drugs and drinking without a hangover. And as I collected my stuff from, that, uh, from the cabin out in the woods, and it was a Sunday morning, and and I went home to change and try to clean up as best as I could because I was kind of ragged. And I got to the next-door neighbors that had first introduced me to Jesus and brought me to church all those years ago at age 7. I'm now 17. And I knocked on the door and I said, Guess who? Can I come to church? They took me, of course. They had been praying for me. Not knowing the full complexity of what was going on in my life, but they knew I had I was prone to wander. That I had left the faith. Still believing, but just couldn't deal with the, the pain from the abuse and, and the years of beatings and sexual abuse and the things that I went through from my, from my father. And I get to church after not being there for many, many months. And, and some people welcomed me and some didn't. That was, that was just a way of, of life. Some were glad to see me. People were wondering, why is he there? This long-haired, hippie-looking guy who ran away from the faith. And the message was about the prodigal son. And the beauty of God to bring me back into his family was so kind of him. So wonderfully good of God to bring me back. To help me fail in the attempt of my life. And and then the second time, trying to drink myself to death. That failed. The attempts of the enemy to destroy, to steal and rob everything that was that God had meant for me, God would not allow. How wonderfully good of God to do that for me. And ultimately for my wife and for my kids. Because who knew? But God. So God brings me back to these memories and to these wonderful events in my life. Because 
there's this thing that the enemy implants in us that will ultimately destroy us if we allow ourselves to live in a constant state of it. And that constant state, that thing that the enemy wants to implant and impart into our soul, into our spirit, and into our lives, is this thing called doubt. If you remember last week, I, sh- I shared another story about, you know, when I was six years old and I broke my collarbone. You know, my brothers actually broke my collarbone. And waiting all day long for my father to come home so he could take me to the hospital to get it taken care of. And the first words out of his mouth were, all you do is cost me money. See, those words implanted doubt about my worth. And I built a belief system on them. See, doubt, believe it or not, is a belief system. And that seems so. But if you're doubting one thing, you're actually believing another. And the, and, the, and the weird thing about it is, is you're actually choosing to believe another thing. And I chose to believe that my father's words were true, that I had no value. And that was some of the reasons why I started to walk away from the Lord at age 12. Because it just, those words increased. Uh, I, I won't go into all the things my father said, but he, he, built, he, he helped me build that belief system of doubt of my worth. Now, he caused a wound. My father caused a wound. He is responsible for that wound. But I am responsible for the choices of the things that I believed. See, I started to believe that God was not good. I started believing what his word says about his goodness, his kindness. So that's kind of the backdrop of where I was sermon prepping this week. And I want to tell you something. I just want you to think for a moment. The first time you knew Jesus was real. And that you believed with everything that you had, that all the light bulbs went on, that every, every curtain was pushed back, and suddenly you knew that Jesus was real and that he loved you completely. Can you remember that moment? And how absolutely free you felt right at that moment. Like you could conquer anything. Like you could do anything because this, this, this God had redeemed you and you knew it. See, I believe that God wants us to go back there over and over and over again to remember what he has done. I was in a state of rejoicing this week more than sermon prepping. I mean, it was, you know, last week I felt like I was drowning. And this week I felt like I was on my back floating which I don't do very well naturally. <laughs> Freaks me out. But spiritually, I felt like I was just kind of like laying back, just floating in, in this amazing thing called grace. So I want you to kind of think about that as, as we get into what I believe God has for us this morning. So let's pray. Father, you are good. And you're good at what you do. <laughs> Thank you for coming and being with us today and inviting us into your presence. So I asked... Father, today, that 
Every word that is spoken, everything that is spoken, honors your name only. Uh, that words that are that are somehow just come from Jay, they're, they're just totally forgotten, and only your words are remembered this morning. Uh, it is hard, hard to know you better. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal the Father to us, reveal the, the Messiah to us, help us to understand what your word is saying to us this morning. Because we want to be free. And we know where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is liberty. So help us, Father, to listen, to obey your word, and to walk in more freedom according to your will and desire, your purpose and your plans. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis has this really powerful quote. We're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. But we are wondering how painful the best will be. Remember a few months ago we were talking about waiting for this other shoe to drop, how we, we get like that sometimes. This is what kind of C.S. Lewis is saying here. You know, some, we, sometimes we don't have any doubt that God means good for us, but man, what's it going to cost us? I don't think God wants us to think about him that way. Because that's not the way he is. And so this whole thing about doubt is something that we need to look at, we need to confront, and we need to try to our best to just to push it aside because doubt messes with the way we think, makes us ask a lot of questions. Sometimes it makes us overanalyze the situation. Doubt messes with our minds, it makes us wonder about God's plans, His goodness, and, and doubt gets really messy. So when we're talking about doubt in the biblical sense, in the scriptural sense, I just want to say up front, we all struggle with doubt. And that in itself is not sin. It just means we're human. And it's quite okay to be human because because that's what we are. God made us to be human, so it's quite okay to be human. And God expects us to be human, and God wants us to react as human beings. But he also wants us to react for those of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and King to act like sons and daughters. So when, again, never said last week, so when we, when we look at sin, we can look at it maturely. We can look at it with hope. We don't look at it with condemnation or shame or anxiety or rejection. We look at it with the hope that God is bringing redemption into our situation, right? Right? So this is why we, we can take apart these words that kind of are just normal human words. Doubt's a normal human I doubt the, the Mets will ever wear in the World Series again. I just doubt it. Okay? I doubt it. But it has nothing to do with my faith. So... Doubt in itself, I don't want to, I'm not trying to condemn anyone here today, but I want to pick this word apart so that we can wrestle with the doubts that cause us to stumble in our faith. Amen? Can we do that? Can we do that? Luke 24, 38, Jesus asks this powerful question. It seems like Jesus is always asking powerful questions, but this is really good. He's just been resurrected. Jesus is popping in and all other places, appearing before the disciples. He was on the road to Emmaus with two of the disciples. He sits down and has a meal with them. He disappears. These disciples go back to the other disciples and say, hey, we saw Jesus. And boom, Jesus shows up again. So he, he's just popping in and he says, he goes, why are you frightened? Why do you doubt? Now, 
the, the Greek word there means something internal, okay, something that I am making up. It's not from an outside source. I am choosing to be frightened. So it freaked them out a little bit, but Jesus is going directly to the heart of the matter here. He says, so why are you frightened and why do you doubt? The Greek word there for doubt means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is it means this eternal wrestle that makes you agitated. This eternal wrestle that makes you agitated. So you got the frightened thing over here uh, that I am making up why I'm afraid. And then it's mixing with this doubt, and you, you, you see why you're, you're disturbed. See what doubt does to you, because doubt is really connected to fear. But the beauty of Jesus is so awesome. His goodness is so awesome. He asks that question, and what he does, he says, here, check out my hands, check out my feet. What's on his hands and feet? Scars. So, say, so there's no lecture here about why they shouldn't be doubting. There's no lecture here about why they shouldn't be afraid. There's only assurance of who he is. There's only an assurance of, hey, I'm, I'm here with you. Grab a hold of me. Check it out. It's me. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to doubt. I am with you. And the promise of having Jesus with us and having new life, even with scars. Scars are redemption stories. And it seems like Jesus' response to the problem of doubt in Scripture is always with, the, he always deals with, with this, the question of why. Why? Why, do, why are you afraid? Why do you doubt? And it's not, Jesus is not trying to shame us. Jesus is trying to get us to take doubt and look at it through the lens of who Jesus is. See, that's, that's the point of it. Jesus is not saying, what's wrong with you? No, he's saying, why? If you know me, you wouldn't doubt. You wouldn't be afraid if you really know who I am. So, Come and get to know who I am. This is an invitation that Christ is doing for us. There's no shame here. There's no condemnation here. He's just saying, look who I am. Look what I've done for you. Look what I will do for you. So when any discussion about doubt, even in its connection to sin, I think mercy is needed. And I'm so glad this verse is in the Bible. Listen to this in the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Those who wrestle with these things. Have mercy on them. Because they're human. Because the obvious is everyone doubts. And everyone needs mercy. The Greek word for doubt, like I said, is really intensive. It also means this. The word doubt means to separate. To withdraw from. And then to oppose. See, this is why this is a horrible word. To withdraw from, separate from, and then oppose. Oppose what? The truth. Through this is why this word doubt is is can be really insidious when 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 the enemy imparts it into us. So when we deal with doubt, we need to call it what it is. Doubt is is distrust of God. 
which separates us from God and leads us to withdraw. And then we build up this resistance to his truth. And so when people try to lead us to the gospel or lead us to words of scripture that that would encourage us in our situation, we resist it. Because we give more power to the doubt than we give them to the truth. You see that? See that? This is why doubt can be really, really insidious. The danger is this. Long-term distrust, long-term doubt leads to unbelief. And now we have really withdrawn ourselves. And now we are really separated ourselves. And we are resisting on every angle that we possibly can. Doubt is awful. Satan uses it. The sin of unbelief is from the garden. Adam and Eve chose to trust the words of the enemy over the words of God. We know what that led to. The fall. And it leads to our own personal fall as well. The times that we stumble and trip is usually connected in doubting God's word. Now, I'm not talking about a momentary wrestle. I'm not talking about those thoughts that come into our mind. Those are not sin. Okay, because we never, we all, we all struggle with doubt. We all deal with doubt. We all have moments of trial and temptation and, and, and being human. We can't help but doubt sometimes. I'm talking about when doubt becomes a pattern, when it becomes a belief system, never? Because doubt is a belief system that we buy into, that we, that we live according to doubt instead of according to faith. So when, when doubt becomes this persistent, consistent thought that God is not good, that his plans are not good, that his word is not true, Oh, it's true in this area of my life. I know I'm saved. I know that, you know, I've accepted him. So, you know, I'm, I'm a believer. But he doesn't ever do anything in my life over here. When we do that, we have chosen to believe a lie. Because God is good. He's not just good in one area. He's just good. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. See, my wife has cancer, but God is still good. Hey, I suffered through 10 years of abuse that should have killed me, but God is still good. See, God is just good. Our situations can be bad and horrible and terrible and need, need deliverance from, we need freedom from, we need God to intervene. Yes, yes, and yes. But God is still good. Father is good. Father is good. So it, when doubt does these, implants these, um, in this doubt belief system, I think there's two main categories that God, I mean, that, that God wants to fight against, but that the enemy wants to implant in our mind. The first one is, God was not powerful enough to keep what wounded me from happening. That's the first one. The second one is very similar. God was powerful enough, but he didn't love me enough to care. Those are almost at every root of doubt with almost everybody that I've ever talked to or counseled about. It was at the root of mine. 
And that's why I think God wanted me to go back to some of these memories and, and revisit them and think about this in the case because the fact is that God is good. And those, those two main thoughts, they leave the questions as like, God, where were you? Why didn't you answer my prayer back then? Why didn't you intervene? Didn't you love me? I, I asked those questions way back in the day. Those questions are actually very good questions to ask. Those are important questions to ask. But if doubt is fueling those questions consistently and constantly and passionately, no answer will do. See, in our brokenness, we can ask those questions of God because God wants us to. Because God wants to come into those memories even and help us deal with them. And help us heal. And help us mature. Help us become free. So those questions are not bad questions and questions like them. But if they are fueled and we are resisting with doubt, no answer will do. That's why we need the Messiah to come and heal us, forgive us. Because if you believe that God was not powerful enough or not loving enough to keep you from being wounded or even good enough to heal you now, you have chosen to believe a lie. And to say that God is not good disagrees with his word. First Chronicles 16.34 Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. All the doubts that I, that I was embracing after all those years of abuse, all the words that I chose to believe that my father spoke over me, and believe me, there were, there were much words that he spoke over me. The curses that I was living under because of my father's words, not just his actions. I needed redemption from. I needed healing from the wound and I needed a healing from my choices because of those words. So when I came back to church that Sunday and I heard the prodigal son story and I heard about the fact that the father ran up to the son and said, basically, welcome home, son. Let's throw a party. Restoring his sonship, his authority, and his place in the family with the robe, ring, and shoes. Things that slaves don't wear. Things that people who run away from home don't wear. Something began to click in my mind, and I realized that I had to fight every doubt with the Word of God. And that I had to stop resisting the truth just because it didn't line up with my pain. See, I was letting my pain dictate my level of faith in God. If God would just remove my pain, then I could believe in him. If God would heal me the way that I want to be healed, then everything would be fine between him and I. You don't dictate your healing to God. You don't dictate your freedom to God. Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. And God knows how to set up a healing scenario so that when freedom does come, we're the most free that we can ever be. That's what he did for each one of us here to call Jesus Messiah. He set up the scenario that that day that it happened, we were never going to be more free than that in this way. We were going to realize that we were free. See, now I'm freer than I was when I was at age 17 because I've walked in freedom and it helps me to grow. And ever we said last week that when we become free, we get to see the areas that we need more freedom. This is what the great thing about freedom does. But that moment, that moment 
when I realized that I was totally free was like no other that I've ever experienced in my life. It's beautiful. I think God wants us to recall those memories so that we can go forward with more freedom. Can we turn to Gospel of John chapter 11? The lessons in this story about doubt, about faith, about mercy. This is so great. This story is so awesome. It's the story of Jesus healing Lazarus. Jesus is out with his disciples. He receives word that one of his dearest friends, Lazarus, is sick. And Jesus loves this man. It is known throughout scripture that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and he loves Lazarus. There's a special connection between these three and Jesus. He spends a lot of time in their house. He loves these people. He loves Lazarus. So you would think if he got word that his friend was sick, that Jesus would immediately stop in his tracks and return back to Bethany and, and, and heal his friend. Or, as he's done in other cases, send someone with just a word that, okay, go, he's healed, just tell him he's healed. Jesus does none of that. Instead, he says, when Jesus heard it, he said in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Jesus is making a very huge statement here. It almost seems uncompassionate, doesn't it? Again, if we're judging it through the lens of doubt, we have the great advantage that most of us have reread this story hundreds of times or heard it in sermons or in stories. So, but imagine you're hearing Jesus say this for the very first time. You're the disciples, and Jesus says, basically, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay, but it's going to bring Father glory, and it's going to bring me glory. Basically, the issue is not really about Lazarus being sick. It really has to do with me and what I'm about to show you. It's really not about Lazarus at all. This situation is not meant to kill Lazarus or make Lazarus suffer. Jesus knows, we can find out later on as we read, Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die. And he still says a pretty amazing thing here. It's mainly about God, it's about Jesus, and about how good they are. Because when when you talk about God's glory, you're talking about God's goodness. Exodus 33, 18-19, Moses says to God, Please show me your glory. It's a big thing. You're not supposed to see God. But Moses says, show me your glory. And God answers him this way. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious to and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. God's glory is his goodness. His name, his renown is all about his goodness. And we see the goodness of God in the life of Jesus. And this is what Jesus said. I'm setting something up here. God wants to reveal something to you. This illness will put the goodness of God on display. And it will make Jesus look amazing. It will make Jesus look amazing. And good and kind and powerful. And exercise authority. Like almost... This this story, although it's a brief story, is so powerful. 
Because God is, Jesus is teaching us about life and death here. And about trusting Him. And about how, how, we describe, how we define goodness is a lot different than how God defines goodness. And we need to be focused on how God defines goodness and not our own definition. Because I don't know about you, but mine is pretty weak. Because usually when I define goodness, it's all about whatever happens to me needs to be good. The way I define good, and that's not usually what's best for me. So here's the first proclamation of, the, of today. Remember, we were doing proclamations throughout the, this series. Here's the first one today. When we see Jesus, we see God's goodness. When we see Jesus, we see God's goodness. That's important to remember. All right, so Jesus gets this news. He makes this big statement, and he doesn't go back. He delays going back for two more days. So not only does he not go back immediately, it's two more days before he even starts to go back. It's pretty amazing. Jesus knew that the delay is going to kill Lazarus. And so when he goes back, Lazarus is dead. Prior to this, you can see this little exchange here. That, uh, when Jesus says it's time to go back, the disciples are freaking out because Jesus' life was threatened not too long ago. And he says, you go back there, you know, they're still looking for your head. And Jesus starts this whole thing about walking in the daylight and walking at nighttime. And, and the disciples are going, what is he talking about? Basically, Jesus is saying here, look, my time is not yet. My time to... To be sacrificed on the cross, that's, that's, that's not here yet. So, put your doubts away. Put your fears away. You're with me. It's going to be okay. That's basically what that little exchange there. So, Jesus is dealing with their doubt as he's about to go back and deal with Martha and Mary's doubt concerning their brother. Powerful. Okay, I'll move this along here. He tells them, he said, that, uh, don't worry about it, Lazarus is asleep. I'm, I'm going to wake him up. And then the disciples go, well, if he's asleep, just let him rest. He'll be okay. And then he tells them, no, he, he's dead. we got to go back. Pretty amazing in that itself, it says. But he says, you know what? Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, that you might believe. So let us go. Again, I'm, I'm, if I'm the disciples, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing this for the first time, and I'm going... What is he talking about? I mean, it doesn't. The only recording of the disciples after this is, is Thomas says to his disciples, "Let us go, so that we might die with him." That's the only response from any other disciples that's recorded. It's like like Thomas got a picture of what Jesus was talking about, but not really. So the disciples are they're a little bit clueless right here. We. We get the benefit of, again, reading the story from, from history, but this, they're going through this, and they're, they're still trying to figure out who Jesus is. So they, they get there. Lazarus' body has been in a tomb for four days. Four days. And you have to understand something. In the Jewish belief system of that time, the Jews believed that the spirit left the body after three days. It is now... Four days. And almost all hope of any kind of healing is gone from their mindset. They simply do not believe anything can happen now. 
that his soul has gone to wherever his soul has gone to. And there's no chance of reviving this man. So you, so when the Jewish people mourned, they mourned for 30 days, and they did it very loudly. A lot of weeping, a lot of crying out, a lot of moaning, a lot of emotional turmoil. This is what Jesus walks into. He knows the deal. He's Jewish. He knows this is what's going to happen. Four days, Martha comes running up to him and says some key things. Lazarus is into four days. Jesus understands that everyone believes that the spirit is gone after three days. Jesus really loved Lazarus. So I have a really important question for you this morning. What does it mean to be loved by Jesus? His love means that he gives us what we need the most. First, that's himself. And most of the time, what we need is not healing. What we need is Jesus. The most. And we need a full understanding of the goodness of Father God. And we need to be able to experience it for ourselves. Because here's the real truth. God's presence, God's goodness is healing. It is freedom. For the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And liberty is, the Greek word for liberty is liberty. It means freedom. It means that you're free. God's presence does that. God's goodness is healing. So Jesus understands this, that, that it's really not about dealing with all the Jewish belief systems at this time. It's really believing with the truth of who God is. And he's going to bring that to their attention. God's glory is full of his goodness. Verses 21 to 22. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. But, I love this about Martha here. I am certain that even now, whatever you request you make to God, he's going to give it to you. That's a pretty bold statement. Everybody gives Martha grief. Okay? I'm going to show you that in this story, Martha's got it all over Mary in this story. Everybody always says, oh, Mary, I'm going to be a Mary, I don't want to be a Martha. Really? Wait till you hear that's a huge statement of faith right there. Now Martha knows the spirit is gone. That what, nothing can be done here, but I know if you ask God, he's going to answer you. Not personalized yet. She's not getting that part yet, but she gets, she's getting a picture of who Jesus is. So here's the next proclamation here. It is never too late for Jesus. It is never too late for Jesus. Never too late for Jesus. Martha leaves the morning thing, which was, you know, amazing. She comes to Jesus. Why didn't it take you so long? Why didn't you come right away? Don't you care? All those things are wrapped up in that statement. She's wrestling with her grief. Her, she's wrestling with her hope. hope and she, she's really confused about Jesus' timetable here. Why didn't it take you so long? And Jesus, I love this, in verse 23, he says, Your brother will live again. Jesus tells her exactly what he's going to do. Your brother's going to live again. And Martha's response is beautiful, but more theological than it is anything. She says, 
I know he'll be raised to life on the last day when all the dead are raised. This was a Jewish belief that on the last day, everybody gets raised from the dead. She believes this. But she's not getting what Jesus is saying yet. It's a good one. It, 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 it's good theology. She responds with very good theology. And that's not bad. But it's not bringing her any hope either. There's not a heart connection yet. So Jesus takes Martha's expression of theology and then he redirects it back to him on verse 25 to 26. He says, you know what? I'm the one that's going to bring people back to life. And another important, huge question. Do you believe this? Do you believe? He's not saying, do you believe about the resurrection? He's saying, do you believe this, that I'm the one? This is what he's saying. Do you believe I'm the one that's going to make this happen? Jesus is also saying, you know, I know your theology. I, I know what you believe. But do you believe who I say I am right now? That I'm the one that can raise Lazarus from the dead. Is really what he's saying. Again, she answers with good, sound theology. And she said, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. And you are the one that we hoped would come into the world. You see the hope in her statement there? We hoped that you would come into the world. She understands the connection between resurrection and the Messiah. Again, it's very good theology. So she, she has this interchange with Jesus. She goes and gets Mary. And, and Mary comes to Jesus. And she says this exact same thing that her sister said. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't be dead. But there is no theology that comes after that. It's like, it's done. Jesus, you don't understand. It's been four days. You've been here, it's been okay. You would have been able to heal him. But now that he's dead, it's done. There's nothing that, like Martha does with the exchange of, of a theology discussion about what Jesus can do and what he can't do. It's just like she just, but she does one thing that I think is extremely important. She falls at her, Jesus' feet. And that's a place of worship. It's a place of abandonment. So it seems like all her hope is gone, but she knows that the best place to be is at Jesus' feet, admitting her doubt, telling Jesus, I don't think there's any hope here, but I'm going to be at your feet and a place of worship, a place of dependence. And so that's why I think Martha and Mary's response is different, but they're both struggling with this thing called doubt. Verse 33, verse 35, and verse 38 has these great emotional responses from Jesus. Verse 33 says he was terribly upset. Verse 38 says he was terribly upset. And the one verse that everyone can memorize from start, you know, verse 35, Jesus wept. But these are strong emotional responses from Jesus. It says when he was terribly upset, the word, the Greek word means that he snorted with anger. So they could visibly tell that he was angry and they could hear that he was angry. Now, Jesus was not angry at Martha or Mary or even the crowd of mourners that do what mourners do. They wail and they cry and they scream and they rip, they rip their clothes and they throw ashes and, and they make a, a public display of, of their anguish and their grief alongside the ones that they're grieving with. But Jesus is visibly and audibly angry here. He snorted with anger. But imagine that. But man, what was Jesus angry about? 
But Jesus was definitely moved by the expressions of the two sisters and about because Mary came weeping and fell at his feet. He's moved. He's moved by the mourners even. And he's moved by his own loss of his friend. But Jesus knows he's about to raise him from the dead. So it's not that. that he's, he's just angry at what death does. What doubt does. He, he looks at Mary. He doesn't even answer Mary. What she says. He has this great talk with Martha. Mary comes to him and says the same thing. He doesn't have a conversation with Mary. Because he sees what doubt has done to her faith. And what she's now choosing to believe. That it's done. Lazarus is dead. There's nothing else can be done. And Jesus is angry about what that has done to Mary's faith. And so what Jesus gets busy. He doesn't answer Mary. Oh, you know, verse 37, this is tucked in there. It says, uh, the crowd says, uh, this man, he made a blind man see. Why didn't he show up on time and keep this man from dying then? Make me angry. Make me upset. Again, but not really at the crowd, but at the lack of faith. A lack of knowing who he was. Because he knows what that does to people. See, it's not, not that he's angry at this crowd for having doubt. He's angry about what doubt has done to them. See, it's different. He's angry at the enemy. Okay? So we, we, we don't want to say that Jesus is condemning the crowd here. He's angry, but he's angry because doubt has disturbed the, the, the clarity of who Jesus is. That's what he's angry about here. This is spiritual warfare. Okay? This is... This is Jesus addressing something very clearly here, and he's angry about it. And I know it's hard to imagine Jesus being angry, but he is angry here. That verse 37 is, is, a, uh, is a warning to us, too. There are people that we know that help fuel doubt in us. There are people in our lives that will come right alongside of us saying, Yeah, doubt, God didn't show up. I don't know why God didn't show up. But we got to keep praying. Just pray. I don't, you know, God's ways are harder than our ways. They formulate a lot of Christian platitudes and even scripture. But all they do is fuel the doubt in us. You see that? God's angry at that too. Doesn't that just be a warning of, the, of re-examining some of, the, some of the personalities in our life? Okay, let's, let's put it that way. Jesus says, uh, where is he? Where have you laid him? This is a cool thing I thought about just this morning. How do we know that Martha and Mary and everybody else is still struggling with their doubt here? Because if Jesus shows up on the scene, what's the first thing I'm going to do? Not complain about where has he been. I'm going to take him right to the tomb. Oh, you're here? I'm taking him right to the tomb. Unless I'm still doubting. That's so why I'm still struggling with doubt. Tradition says that, you know, his spirit is gone. I'm going to trust that more than the Son of the Living God in my presence right now. It's huge. This story is huge. It's small, but it's a huge. I hope you've seen it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm really going over time here. Please forgive me. But this is, I'm getting, I'm getting to the end. Show me where he's laid. Take away the stone. Remove every barrier to walking free. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Martha is still wrestling down because he says, she says, Jesus, in four days, he really stinks by now. Are you sure you want to go in there to say your last respects or whatever you were attending? She still doesn't get what Jesus is doing here. You know, it's too late to you to pay your last respects because he really smells at this point. See, she's still struggling with her doubts. She got no picture of what Jesus... And none of us would either, okay? None of us would either. I'm not blaming Martha. I'm not blaming Mary. We'd probably all be in the same boat here. But I want you to examine some of the areas of our lives this morning that we do this. Jesus shows up and says, I'm going to remove some things. And we're saying, ah, I don't think you want to because it stinks in there. I don't think you want to go in there, Jesus. Take away the stone. Didn't I tell you that you will see God for who he really is? You'll see his goodness. Get rid of the stone. Jesus approaches the tomb angry at death and ready to display authority, power, and incredible mercy. He's not worried about the questions. He's not worried about the doubts. He's not worried about the fears. He doesn't care if Lazarus stinks or not. He prays a prayer to God, thanking God for always hearing his prayer. Making sure that everyone hears it. So that they can believe the truth. It's for their benefit. It's for their benefit. And for ours. If God always hears the prayers of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God right now interceding for us? Jesus. So you may doubt your own prayers. Never doubt the prayers of Jesus, because God always hears. But God always hears your prayers because of Jesus. All right, that was free. Okay, so we can, that, was, that was free. Verse forty-three: Lazarus, come out. There's, it's been said that Jesus had to say Lazarus, because otherwise everybody that was dead would have come out as well. So he's got to be really specific here. But I also think this is his friend who he desperately wants to see walk again. He knows he can. He knows he will. But Jesus says, man, I, this is my friend. <clears throat> Lazarus, come out of here. Come out of here. Here's, a, here's another proclamation. You ready for this one? Redeemed people don't stink. Redeemed people don't stink. I realized, you know, I, I, when I was in sin and when I was rebelling and when I was resisting the truth, I stunk on so many different levels. I'm redeemed. Those things don't stink anymore. Because I'm redeemed. Redeemed people don't stink. If Jesus raises you from the dead, you're not going to stink. When Jesus calls you out, you come out free, but you're going to need some help. Verse 44. Untie him and let him go. That word unbind in the Greek means to break up, to destroy, to dissolve. It means to get rid of everything that has kept him captive. See, Lazarus comes out and he's still in his grave clothes and says, help the dude out. Unwrap him. Sometimes, most times, in our, in our walk in freedom, we're going to need help. We're going to need help being free. We need each other. 
See, we, we, we become more free in community. It's messy. I know it's messy. But I need you sometimes to unwrap the things I'm caught up in. I need your help to, with, through prayers and encouragement and, and, and sometimes correction. Loving correction. That helps unwrap these things that keep me dead. That keep me bound up. Unable to move out of... You know, see, he was set free, but someone had to roll away the stone. And someone had to untie him, unbind him. Remove the grave clothes from him. The symbol of death from him. So those two things. God was not powerful enough to stop whatever wounded us. God was powerful enough but didn't care enough. Or do we believe that God has a powerful purpose behind whatever wounded us? And that purpose is to reveal his goodness. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So by testing, you might discern what the will of God, what the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, that word, uh, the renewal of your mind, means uh, a renovation of your mind. A total rework of your mind. As a redeemed son of God, I remember every instance of abuse I walked through. I could recall to you in great detail. I will not do that to you, but I could call, I could tell you about every, every event that happened of abuse in my life. But I can look at it now without pain, without shame, without rejection, because God has redeemed it. By the renewing and the transformation of my mind. God rewires the way we think and even even the way we remember the womb. God can do that. I know God can do it because He's did it for, He's done it for me. And so that's why I want to leave you with this morning that we pray that God will renew our mind so that when we visit those things that have wounded us in the past, we can look at it knowing that there is a purpose behind it. And I know it might have been difficult to to think this way, but when I look back at my wounds, I know it reveals God's goodness. I may not be able to explain that concisely to you, but I know this within my heart, that all all those things, 10 years of it, and the subsequent years of, of, of abuse I gave my, did to myself because of it. God has redeemed every one of those memories by the renewing of my mind, by the way I think about God. Because of this. Because His Word is precious. His Word is life. And God is good. <laughs>